You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. John chapter 20, we're going to start reading in verse 19, and then uh, we'll pray together. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood with them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold, the for, the, withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other, other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord, Thomas. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, Thomas. And see my hands, and put your hand into my side, and don't be disbelieving, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, we pray this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, reveal these truths to us, Lord. You take the words that are on the written page and put them onto the places of our hearts that need them, Lord, and, and into our minds where we need to, to, to receive them and wrestle with them. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, and we pray, Lord God, that you would draw us near to you this morning. You'd speak to those who feel in a sense forsaken by people that they love, who love them, from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Do you know what it's like to really feel abandoned? To feel left alone, forsaken. Um, about a month after moving to Boston, uh, my family and I, we, we do these frequent trips, field trips with our kids. I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, and a one-year-old, which uh, was like going from JV to varsity, that third kid for us. And, and we do these frequent trips that uh, we call our little field trips because it's something of familiarity to our kids. So we pack them up and we take them to Trader Joe's or Costco because it's something familiar to us uh, from a life that we have lived and left behind a couple of of months ago. And um, one particular day after coming home from Trader Joe's, um, it was so hot, so humid, something that we're still acclimating to, getting getting adjusted to. And um, 
in those particular days, now I love my kids, but those particular days are days when my daughters, for, for whatever reason, they, they want to jump up and hold and hug and grasp and, and snuggle. And I just tell them, no, we can't do that right now. It's way too hot for that. Let's, my face is melting off. Um, and, and so this was one of those days. My daughter, Daddy, can you carry me inside? She's getting way too big for that. I, I, no, I can't. Sorry. It's so hot. I just can't do it right now. And uh, you understand, don't you? You're seven. You should understand that. <laughs> and so um, I left her out to, we, we started carrying the groceries inside. And I just wanted to grab the groceries and run inside so that I can turn on this thing that I swore as a kid growing up in a trailer park I would never have again, which is a, a window air conditioning unit. And I ran inside, turned on the window AC to try to just bring some coolness into the house. And... Uh, we're in there for about 10 minutes, putting the groceries away, and, and this is not, no lie, this isn't for effect or any, any type of effect. I, I go to the window, and I'm just looking out the window thinking, wow, does it really have to be this humid outside? What, what, what's, I mean, what did, it, what, am I, what did I do? And I'm looking outside, and I see my little seven-year-old daughter frantically running in the backyard, trying to run into the gate, trying to knock on the door, running back outside. I yell for my wife, Nina, did you, did you bring Nevaeh inside? No. She got locked outside in the heat. She's almost dead out there. And so I see her running around. She's, she can't, she's trying to knock on the door. We can't hear her because our house is in Boston. Everything's pretty old. So our house was built around the time that Jesus walked the earth. And we, see, we hear her little knock. But, and, and then she runs around the front. And we finally I open the door for her. And she's there. And she's like frantic. But she's trying to fight back the tears. And with this quirky little smile. Like, <laughs> and she's for sure my kid, you know. And. And I, I opened the door to her. And I'm like, I'm so, I'm so sorry, sweetie. Are you okay? She's yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And I'm, what do you want? I'll give you whatever you want, baby. What do you want? She's like, just a hug. I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> it's way too hot, way too hot for that right now. And in that moment, just the sense of abandonment she felt, I just, I felt so bad for her. Not bad enough to give her a hug. It was too hot, and I'm just kidding. Um, hugged her the next day, and 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 that sense of my mommy and daddy have left me inside with my sisters. They've locked me out here for dead. I will, I, and and it's over for me. That sense of the people that you love being no longer there for you or having left you. That's a that's a real that's a real fear that we have. That sense that God has abandoned me. He's nowhere. He doesn't answer my prayer. He, he seems so far away from me. He seems so distant from me. That's how Thomas feels in this, in this section. For eight grueling, long days, Thomas had gone through life feeling as though God's left me. He's let my dreams die. He's nowhere near. He doesn't seem to be close to me. I saw him die. And not only has God abandoned me, but the people that I'm in close community with and relationship with, the people that care about me or are supposed to, they say they've seen Jesus. That's what they had told Thomas. Thomas, they said, they grabbed him. The night after Jesus' crucifixion, the night after the resurrection, 
we saw the Lord. We saw Jesus. It says that they were huddled up in the house for fear of the Jews. And we, we read the words on a paper, and, and yeah, it kind of makes sense. They were afraid. They were inside. No, this is, this is fear. This is real fear. It's a dark room with nothing but a candle to, to give them light. And they're whispering to one another. You can only hear whispers as they talk to one another because they're afraid that the Jewish religious leaders would lock them up as dissidents, as worshipers of this 33-year-old Jewish carpenter who claimed himself to be God and in a sense now that they worship this man who claimed Godhood and now they can't find his body and the Roman soldiers are claiming that somebody stole his body so that they're not put to death and that the women, they're coming back and they're saying, we saw Jesus. And as they're sitting there huddled up for fear, Every dark dog that barks outside and every tap on the window and every howl of the wind is another reminder of that fear that they have. All of a sudden, Jesus himself, it says, comes and stands in their midst and says to them, Shalom, peace to you. And he speaks peace to their unpeace. And Thomas isn't there that night. He doesn't really want to be with people. You know what that's like. Those times of emotional heartbreak. I just don't want to play that game tonight. I don't want to be with them. I don't feel like putting on the face. Playing the game. And then the night that he chooses not to be at the community group. At the community group that's (laughs) unlike any community group. Right after the resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ. The one that they followed. That's when Jesus walks into the room not bound by any limitation, not bound by locks on the, on the door. And he presents himself there and he says, I want you to look at my hands, look at my wounds. It's me. And the disciples tell Thomas, we saw Jesus. And Thomas responds to them, I will never believe. Unless I see myself and put my finger into the place where those nails went in and I can touch his side for myself, I will never believe. And it says, for eight days, Thomas lived his life like this. Cynical, in denial, frustration, disappointment, and fear. Aren't our lives wrapped up at moments of incredible faith? Maybe you come into this hall, you're out with other believers, incredible faith. And then, the next day comes incredible fear. For me, if you're anything like me, it happens a thousand times in the course of a single day. Faith, God, you're, you can do anything. You're alive. Fear, God, are you here? You're absent. You don't answer my prayer. Where are you? And that's where Thomas finds himself for eight days. Incredible fear. He walks the streets by himself. Finally, one particular day, he decides, I'm going to go to that community group again. I'm going to go be with them I don't even know what's there. I just know I got nowhere else to go. So he shows up. And in verse 28, it says, After these eight days, the disciples were again together, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came again and stood among them. And he says, Peace be with you. How are you and I, because if we're honest, we're just like Thomas. Frederick Beekner. Uh, talking about this passage, says 
Notice Thomas's nickname is called the twin. And we don't ever realize who that twin is, but if you want to know who the twin is, it's me. And if I'm not too mistaken, it's you. So often like that as well. Just like Thomas in so many ways. He's so human. He's so real. He's so tangible. He's so physical. Wrapped up with the spiritual. And as Jesus comes to him, the question is, how is Thomas supposed to continue to have faith when he's so fearful? How is he supposed to really live when he's so doubtful? There's a few things that I think are keys for us. We'll look at each of them pretty quickly. The first is in what Thomas hears. There's something that Thomas hears that begins to stir him up, that begins to give him courage. When Jesus comes into their midst, the first thing he says to them is, after put your fingers here and see my side, he says to him, don't disbelieve, believe. (laughs) Really? That's the great news you have for me? Like telling a hungry man, hey, I know you're dying of starvation. Don't be hungry. Or my daughters, when I tell them, hey, can you go get something out of the basement? There's a lot of spiders. In New England, we have incredible spiders. Say, sweetie, can you go down to the basement and grab, you know, whatever I need from down there? Dad, there's spiders down there. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Just go down and get that. She's like, wow, thanks, Dad. You're a great dad. (laughs) Jesus tells him, hey, don't disbelieve. Believe. (laughs) Thanks for that. Why should Thomas not be disbelieving? I mean, after all, he did see Jesus die. The one he followed as king, Lord, God, he saw him put to death. After all, the circumstances of their life, of their community, of his world, all points to the fact that they should be afraid and he should be unbelieving. Should he not be disbelieving? Is is doubt wrong? Is it wrong for you to doubt? It's not wrong for you to doubt. Most moralists of our day would say, you should never doubt. You should never be cynical. You should never be disbelieving. But one author says, on the contrary, sometimes doubt serves as antibodies for your faith. Just as your body has antibodies that fight against different types of of, uh, sickness, gives you immunity. So also, doubt raises questions as to, okay, beyond what I feel, what's real? And it causes you to ask the deep, important questions of life. Doubt can sometimes strengthen our faith, strengthen your belief. On the other hand, however, a lot of moderns of our culture hold to a certain cynicism that I'm a cynic against all that's miraculous. So that you say that Jesus walks into the room, I don't believe it. That's a miracle. I disbelieve it. Tim Keller in his book, A Reason for God, says, We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, but Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it's wrong and heal the world where it's broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also wonderful foretastes of what he's going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world, the way that we want it, is coming. See, Thomas was a believer, and it's at times good and right for a believer to doubt and say, what's real beyond what I feel? 
But more than that, Thomas had a call in his life as an apostle. See, the, the Bible says that the stipulation to be an apostle, as the Bible sets it forth, um, and to have the authority to speak the words of God, was um, that one of the stipulations, you had to have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It says that in the book of Acts. And that they were followers, not only to have had an anointing and have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, but also an appointing by the other 11. That they recognize this person is an apostle who has seen the risen Jesus. Jesus has appeared to them, and now they have apostolic authority. Thomas had been called to be an apostle. And it's necessary that Thomas believes. Jesus is going to use he and the words of the other apostles. What's the word that he hears? From the other apostles, with the anointing of Jesus, they tell him, we've seen Jesus, Thomas. You can trust our words. He's real. Just as you can trust the Bible and the words that's been penned by uh, men led by the Holy Spirit. Now the question on the floor for you and I in terms of uh, uh, why Thomas doubted is did he have enough evidence? He had by far enough evidence. There was the fact that it was women that had first seen Jesus. They were the first eyewitnesses. And in that culture and in those days, the evidence of women was not permissible in the court of law. And God chooses to use women, to exalt women, to use them and say, I want you to be the ones to go and tell my disciples, my followers that I'm alive. Thomas had the evidence of eyewitnesses, not just the disciples, the apostles that came to him, but also, Paul the Apostle says, over 500 eyewitnesses at the time had said, we've seen the risen Lord Jesus. Beyond that, there was this whole new cultural way to worship Jesus, that um, they would worship on the first day of the week, and that they would worship a man who claimed to be God would be completely uh, uh, just not culturally acceptable in those days. It would actually be cause for them to be put to death. Of course, Thomas had enough eyewitness evidence. Some of us might say, well, the whole issue of miracles and um, the incarnation and the resurrection can can you remove the resurrection and still have the teachings of Jesus? In other words, I agree with the teachings of Jesus, but I just can't really agree with the whole idea that he rose from the dead or that he was born to a virgin or that he was born as a man in our in human flesh. God became human. What C.S. Lewis said in his book, God in the Dock, is that you cannot, can, can Christianity continue as a belief if you remove those miracles of the resurrection and incarnation? Absolutely not. It's like taking the best chapter out of one of your favorite novels. You take that chapter, you remove the whole thing. Whereas most religious beliefs are based on good moral principles, this is the idea that God himself came into human history to live a life that we couldn't live. This is the good news, that he died in our place because we couldn't live that life. So the whole faith crumbles if you remove the resurrection and only have the principles, the teaching. Why? Because God is a person. So for Thomas, as he's in this place of saying, I will not believe, it's not that he doesn't have the evidence. It's that there's something else, some condition of his heart 
that he's saying, unless God does this in my life or shows me this, I cannot, I will not believe or trust in him. The word that Thomas hears is, Jesus is alive, God is alive, and he's powerful, and he has authority, authority over death. He's in this place where Brennan Manning tells a story of a friend of his, a close friend who was an Episcopal Episcopal priest in Columbus, Ohio. And on one particular day in 1981, this priest, this close friend of his, named Kevin, walked into his office at the church and wrote his his, uh, letters stating that he was abandoning his job at the church. He then went home, wrote a letter to his wife telling her and his children that he was abandoning them as well. He fled to a logging, uh, logging camp in New England. He worked there under some alias in this logging camp. He took this job as a logger. And then on one Saturday in January, it was about 10 degrees below zero. He's there in his uh, uh, tin roof covered uh, trailer home. And uh, he's there. It's extremely cold. All he has to warm himself up with is this space heater. The space heater breaks. It quickly drops to about zero below uh, or or zero degrees or uh, really cold. It gets a little cold in New England. And as he's there, he picks, up the, he picks up the heater, throws it out the window. It's getting even colder now. And he yells to God, Christ, I hate you. Damn this religion. I'm finished with you and this Christian crap. Get out of my life. It's all over. Then he falls to his knees and he just starts to weep because he realizes the one thing he has in his life is a God who has continually been there. He's sought after this God who seems to be so far. And at that moment, as he's on his knees weeping and crying, he hears this voice that says to him, you may say this is subjective, but this is the voice that he heard and he says, I know, Kevin. I know. And he says, I heard the voice of Jesus. And at that moment, I could hear the voice of Jesus. I could hear his weeping deep in my soul for me. And him saying, I'm for you, Kevin. And I'm with you. And I'm not going to leave you. And it was that that caused him to get up, leave the mobile home, go back to his family, repent to them, tell them he was sorry, begin this restoration process. And then after a series of time, this man, Kevin, he goes, he he, uh, moves to Seattle and he begins to be the pastor of one of the most uh, uh, fruitful and successful churches in, in Seattle, this Episcopal church. He hears this voice. Thomas hears this voice. It's Jesus saying, don't be unbelieving. I want you to believe. And he hears the disciples and the word of the apostles saying, Jesus is alive. We've seen him. But you know, even that wasn't enough for Thomas yet, that he would hear a word. He needed to see a wound. There's something that he needed to see. We see that when it says in verse 27, Jesus comes to him and he says, I want you to put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands and put your hand and place it into my side. Don't be disbelieving. Thomas hears this word, but you know it really takes him there. This author um, by the name of Allison Thomas, 
She writes about her um, experience. She's an author for a, a well-known uh, uh, Christian apologist and philosopher. And she writes about how in college she wasn't a follower of Jesus and um, she was invited by her friends to a concert. She thought she was going to a regular concert, but it happened to be a Christian concert, which is a really cruel thing to do to somebody. Um, so, <laughs> it's not the way that you're called to win people to Jesus. It's not even, that's not even just kind or polite. Um, and she goes to this concert, and they're playing music and singing some songs, and the Christian musician pauses in between sets, and he says, the three-by-five card that you'll find underneath your chair, we want you to write out all of your struggles and disbeliefs that you have, the doubts and wrestlings that you have with God right now. Write them out. Pass it over to the person who's walking down the aisle. They're going to bring them up to the stage. And she thinks to herself, okay, I'm going to have some questions answered right now. So she says, I take out that three by five card and furiously I begin to write and write and all of a sudden I realize I've filled up this entire three by five card. There is no white remaining in this card. I have bitterness towards God. I feel abandonment from him. And she begins to write it out. Her abandonment, not only from him, but the Christian community as well. And she passes it to the man who's walking down the aisle. The man walking down the aisle takes it up to the stage. And she's waiting for these men to answer her questions. Finally, at least they'll try to, uh, you know, foolishly fumble with them. And she says that, to my disappointment, I'm eager for these answers to be provided. And that's not what happened. Instead, this musician asks us, invites us to close our eyes and begin a time of prayer about the things that we wrote down. I got to admit to you, she says, I was disappointed. I wanted instant verbal answers to my question, not a moment of silence. So reluctantly, she begins to bow her head and close her eyes. And she starts to think about some of the questions that she wrote down. And just when she's starting to get into her pain and her questions and her prayer time, It's interrupted by this strange knocking and clanking. And as she looks up, she realizes they're taking all of those three by five cards and she sees those three by five cards being nailed into a cross. And she says, I opened my eyes and I looked up to see where the racket was coming from and when I did, my heart sunk. Because each index card full of tough questions and objections to faith was being nailed to a big wooden cross. And as I listened to that sad sound of the hammer striking the nail, I heard a different kind of answer to my question. One that was both heartbreaking and hopeful all at once. It was an answer that I wasn't expecting and sadly one that I was usually all too quick to ignore. And as Thomas is there saying, you guys are so super spiritual. That's the interesting thing about the body of Christ. You have different types of personalities. You have people that are quick to believe, to be hopeful. And then you have have the super spirituals. And then you have the Thomases, the sub-spirituals, like me. Thomas is there and Jesus walks in. And at first, Thomas is looking for answers, right? But he finds something different. And when Jesus walks in, he says, Thomas, I can't believe you doubted. You're such a ridiculous excuse for faith. That's not what Jesus says. Look at your Bible. What does Jesus say? He walks in and he looks at them and he says, peace to you. And then he looks and he says, but I came for you. I came for you. Thomas, go ahead. 
See for yourself. And it's the answer that he was all too quick to ignore. But it was the answer of the king coming and had landed. And it was reversal of the weak and the strong. It was like C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. That one that if you remove this one out of the book, the whole story falls. It's the the story, as C.S. Lewis said, that Thomas believed was a myth. That myth about some hero coming from some distant land into our world to save us, to heal us, to take the wounds in our place. Instead, he dies that tragic death at the hands of cruel tyrants. And as he dies, he gives us life in his place. That's a myth, C.S. Lewis says. It was the myth that became fact. It was the myth that became true. The belief that something, there's something else out there and that Jesus, God himself, enters into a specific place in history, in time, in a physical body, talking to real people with compassion in his voice. Thomas, go ahead. Touch me. Don't be unbelieving. Believe. As he had said so many times to his disciples when they thought, surely God has abandoned us. This storm that we're in, why did you let this happen? You're asleep, God. Jesus, wake up. Don't you see we're about to die? The water's in the boat. And Thomas, or Jesus tells them as he crushes the waves and stills the water, tells the wind to be still. Where's your faith? Why did you doubt? Tells me that a lot. Where's your faith? Why do you doubt? As I say, unless God does this, I won't believe. What do we see in these wounds of Jesus? We find a few things. One, that God is personal. The modernist view of God is that it doesn't really matter what you believe. I'll take the teachings of Jesus to be principles, but All religions are basically the same. They all believe in the same God. What really matters is that you're a good, a loving, a moral person, which is the prevalent view in our society. And God is perceived only as this mysterious life force or some first cause to be tapped into some power. But in this story, we realize God is not some life force. God is a person who's actually pretty into you. And acquainted with all your ways. Often it's a sincere in some effort to be gender sensitive. Referring to God as maybe the divine force or the he or the she. We really don't know. In this case Jesus comes as the God man. In human flesh. As a person. God's personal. Unlike any eastern spirituality that leads us to some form of tapping into that force through yoga or meditation or some incantation. The incarnation tells us that we have a personal, touchable God that can be listened to and talked to. That's what the wounds show, Thomas. They also show, Thomas, that God is unique. That because in our culture there is a strong opposition to the idea that Jesus is the only way to reach God, that that's a very narrow view But in this view, Jesus accepts, invites the worship of people. In fact, 
throughout the Gospels and in the Gospel of John, Jesus often refers to himself as the I am, the ego a me. Why is that important? Well, in Exodus, when God asks, or when Moses asks God of the burning bush, who is your name? What should I tell people when they ask me who sent me? God tells them, tell them, I am that I am. Jesus says, I am, ego a me. I am the God. When he was asked, well, you, you don't know Abraham by the Jewish religious leaders. How can you know Abraham? How can you say, I've seen his day? Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And in one particular case, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And in this moment, Thomas makes this grand confession. Now, unlike any other religion or system of belief, in this particular case, the wounds of Jesus show us that Jesus himself invites this worship. That he's both the lamb, powerful, and the lion, compassionate. In Revelation, it says that John is taken up to heaven and he is, as he's there, he sees the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, as this all-powerful God. And he sees him as he comes forth as the lamb that was slayed before the foundation of the earth and all of heaven worships him. Jesus doesn't tell Thomas in this case, stop worshiping me, stop worshiping me, get up. As the angels in Revelation do when John falls down at their feet, to worship them. They say, don't, don't worship us. Reserve worship for God. In this case, Jesus rightly, des- he receives this worship. But what's interesting to me is that as Thomas is here, as he calls out, my Lord and my God, so much of that fear and that disbelief was removed that he had from before. See, the central message of the Christian faith most other religions is you're saved by what you do. That some religious leader is sent to earth by God to tell you how to live. But to Thomas, at this moment, he's so broken by what he sees, the wounds that he sees, because at this point, he realizes that Jesus Christ was abandoned for me. How can I have the courage to face a life that, where I fear that God has abandoned me? In this moment, he sees the wounds of Christ and he realized those wounds speak of his abandonment. Those wounds speak of the fact that he knows the suffering that I face. He knows what it's like to be removed from the people that you love, to be taken to a distant land, to wonder if God really hears you, to wonder if God is really there, if he accepts you. And as he sees the wounds, what Thomas realizes is that this faith is unlike any other. That Jesus Christ himself has come into this earth to live this perfect life that we couldn't live, die a sinner's death that we should have died on our behalf. It takes him to a place of worship. It's good news for his soul. I read a quote from Frederick Beekner that says that if you tell me that Christian commitment is a kind of thing that has happened to you once for all, like some kind of spiritual plastic surgery, I say go to. You're either pulling the wool over your own eyes or trying to pull it over mine. 
Every morning you should wake up in your bed and ask yourself, can I believe it all again today? No, better still, don't ask it until after you've read the New York Times, until after you've studied the daily record of the world's brokenness and corruption, which should always stand side by side with your Bible. And then ask yourself if you can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ again for that particular day. If your answer is always yes, then you probably don't know what believing means. At least five times out of ten, you'll come to the answer no. Sometimes that no is just as important as the yes, maybe more so. The no is what proves you're human in case you should ever doubt it. And then if some morning the answer when you wake up happens to really be yes, it should be a yes that's choked with confession and tears and great laughter. And essentially what he's saying is, I don't want you just just to assume it, just to receive it. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to ask yourself, Beyond what I feel, is this real? Don't just be a robot. You wrestle with it. And as Thomas is wrestling with it, he hears a word and then he sees the wounds and he realizes that the wounds of Jesus Christ are real. He's not just some force out there. He's a person I can talk to. He's acquainted with, my, with me, with my life. Now, the last thing that this leads Thomas to beyond what he hears and what he sees is what he does. And this is equally as important because it says that Jesus says to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, put your hand here, place it in my side, don't disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. Or literally, you are the Lord of me and the God of me. Thomas doesn't actually, it doesn't say that he touched the wounds or that he went and touched his side. Instead, the moment he sees the wounds, he worships. What is Thomas doing? He drops his conditions. He drops the conditional response and the conditional obedience that he once has had when he said, if God doesn't do this in my life, I won't trust him. God, there's something I really want in my life. And unless you do that, I will never believe. Unless you provide this for me, I won't follow. I won't trust you. Why should I take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Why should I believe? Why should I take every thought without anxiety to you in prayer? Why should I come to you if I'm weary and heavy burdened? Unless you follow through with what I want you to do, I will never believe. Thomas drops that and follows Jesus. Why? Because he realizes that condition that he held on to actually was holding him. Some of the conditions that you and I hold on to this morning, conditions of comfort, Security, spousal love, success, prosperity in some way. Those are things that we find actually hold us. Probably in the last couple of months, I realized more and more how fragile not only life is, but faith is. How much I need Jesus, how much I need him because I'm so prone to run after those conditioned responses. And as Thomas drops that, he worships Jesus 
And then Jesus has a word for you and I. He says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe and don't see me. You might say to yourself, duh, I mean, how could Thomas not follow him? He saw the risen Jesus. But don't you know that in the Gospels it says that at the time of Jesus' ascension, many saw him, some saw him, they worshipped him. Some worshipped, Matthew chapter 28, some worshipped, but some disbelieved. In other words, seeing the miracle wasn't enough. There had to be some act of faith, some, as they wrestled with this truth, this idea that Jesus is who he is, that they had this act of faith. There's still an act of faith. And what he's, Jesus tells them, blessed are those who believe without seeing. There's many ways that we see Jesus in our day, still without seeing the physical Jesus. We see Jesus as we serve one another in the community, in community with one another. Through the pages of Scripture, Frederick Buechner, again, in that, in that story of Thomas, he tells of a time that he went forward to receive communion. And as he's receiving communion, the priest gives him the elements and he says, the blood of Christ, Freddie, shed for you. The body broken for you, Freddie, it gives you life. It becomes real to him, tangible. He receives it. Thomas ultimately went on to as church history says, go to India as a missionary. You know that, that saying that we all have before we come to know Jesus, like, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm not sure. What if he sends me as a missionary to India? Or maybe if it's Africa, I can't really remember. It might have been Boston, I don't know. <laughs> Thomas actually takes that challenge. Why? Because at this point, he has seen the wounds of Jesus. They're so much greater than any sacrifice he could make. The wounds of Jesus speak of the personal nature of God, the compassion of God, the uniqueness of God as God. And he goes to India and he becomes a martyr ultimately. How can you face life? How can you face faith when sometimes you feel so abandoned? You hear this word of Jesus. You see his wounds. It causes you to drop your conditions. And it says, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your words, which Jesus, you declare to be truth. And you yourself declare yourself to be the way and the truth and the life. And when Thomas said, we don't know where we're going, how can we know the way? You said, I am the way. We thank you that you're here in our midst. And I believe, Lord, that you're here in our midst this morning, just as you were earlier to work in our hearts, to work on those conditions that we place up, to draw us to a place of faith. Please do that by your Holy Spirit, Lord. 